Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we're continuing on here with our discussion of the Bone Wars, which are also sometimes known as the Dinosaur Wars or the Great Dinosaur Feud. And it's the story of an intense scientific rivalry between two really talented 19th century paleontologists, Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh. And they entered the field at a time when very few dinosaur species were known and competed to find fossils, name the species that those fossils belong to, and to be the first to publish their findings. And in part one of this episode, we learned a little bit about Cope and Marsh's backgrounds and how they got to be paleontologists because they took very different paths, as we'll get into a little bit more later. And we also talked about how they started out as friends or at least as friendly colleagues or acquaintances. I don't know if even their early friendship was what I would... buddies. Yeah, I wouldn't categorize that as a friendship. Friendly. Some people do. Friendly. Yes, they were friendly. And uh, we also talked about what exactly it was that caused this enormous rift to form between them. Yeah, and when we left them off, Cope and Marsh had just started to look west in search of fossils. In this episode, though, we're going to be talking a bit about what they found out west and the sometimes shady tactics that they employed to be the first to get credit for their discoveries. We're also going to take a look at the more official stage on which their battle played out and where it got truly, truly nasty. But first, we want to take a closer look at who these guys were, because it might help provide at least a little more insight as to why they were destined to clash in the first place, the clash of the dinosaur hunters. Okay, so we've already talked about the differences between Cope and Marsh's socioeconomic backgrounds and their educational training, which is kind of where it all started. And if you'll recall, Marsh was poor, raised on a farm until his uncle George Peabody stepped in with the financial support that Marsh needed to go to prep school and then on to Yale. And it's Peabody's generous donation at Marsh's request that also led to the creation of a Museum of Natural Sciences at Yale, which was a move that then helped secure Marsh a professorship there. And it created a great resource for him while he was hunting for fossils. Yeah, he had Yale in his corner. But all of Peabody's support did unfortunately come with a catch, according to an article by James Pennock in American Heritage. It turned out that Uncle George had a certain stipulation for anyone named in his will, and that stipulation involved marriage. When he was 25 and a freshman at Yale, Marsh received a letter from his aunt indicating this stipulation, and it read, quote, if any of his nephews should in any way conduct himself as to disgrace themselves and him, or, now mind this, should any of them form a marriage connection or even get engaged before they have the means of supporting a family, they should never have a cent of his money. He desired me to communicate this to all his nephews. Yeah, and apparently there was one other nephew who had gotten cut out of the will for marrying too soon. So Peabody was serious about this. He was put to the test. By the time Marsh was financially independent, he was well into his 30s. So Pennock kind of suggests maybe he was too set in his ways to marry at that point or, you know, just wasn't inclined to do so. Or just that he had this strange break on his life until he could be financially independent. Right. He had some other friendly sort of issues, though. 
Yeah, just basically the issue was that he didn't have many <laughs> friends. According to an article by Tom Huntington in American History, people found Marsh to be, quote, autocratic and petty and accused him of taking credit for the work of his assistants and for falling behind on paying his employees. Never a good move. At one of his clubs, they apparently nicknamed him, quote, the Great Dismal Swamp. (laughs) That's a bad sign. (laughs) He doesn't do well with the nicknames. No, he really doesn't. Except for the Bone Wars. That one is... It's a pretty great nickname for his rivalry. True. Cope, on the other hand, came from a very different kind of background, which we discussed on the on the last podcast. It was a more privileged beginning. If you remember in the last episode, though, he didn't have a lot of formal education. He was self-taught, and he was a part of this whole gentleman's world of natural science that existed in the 19th century. Dublina and I were talking about it earlier, how it just fascinates us that... Yeah gentlemen would choose to pursue science in some form. And there's something very romantic about it. I mean, we both talked about how it just, there's something very ideal about that. A little troubling, too, because it ends up with, you end up with personal disputes like this. But um, Cope was considered to be very brilliant, considered to be a prodigy. And his life was also very different from Marsh's on a personal level, too. We mentioned that he was married. He had a wife. He had a daughter named Julia. Unlike Marsh, too, Cope was pretty charming. The friends he had seemed to really like him, really care for him, although they would agree that he could kind of be arrogant sometimes. He could be quick-tempered. According to Huntington's article, paleontologist William Berryman Scott, who took Cope's side in the war with Marsh, said of Cope, quote, Despite his greatness, in some measure indeed because of it, he had some unfortunate personal peculiarities, was pugnacious and quarrelsome, and made many enemies. So many enemies, many friends, no friends on the other side, kind of unusual guys. So when we last left off with our story, Cope had kind of broken the mold of those gentlemen naturalists that we were describing. They usually waited for things to be sent to them to study. They didn't actually go out on these great expeditions. And they'd limit their study to the comfort of their own home. Exactly. And Cope, like Marsh, went out to hunt fossils, but he had a different way of traveling from Marsh. We mentioned how Marsh went out with this entourage and had guides and a military escort. Cope did not have a resource like Yale behind him, so he didn't have all these graduate assistants to come with him. So he often put together teams for his expeditions when he got wherever he was going. Also, since Cope was a Quaker, he rarely used a military escort because he was a pacifist, and he pretty much refused to carry a revolver, which a lot of people thought was crazy because of the threat of hostile Native American tribes out west, among other things. Yeah, bandits, highwaymen, all sorts of of risks you might come across, not to mention just the wildlife, potentially. Exactly. Um, Cope did things his way, though, and he was very tough about it. Pennock relates how Cope would read the Bible every night, even when he was out in the field, and if others in his camp would, would laugh at him, he'd sort of stare them down until they would just uh, straighten up, you know, stop laughing, stop making fun of him. 
Cope and Marsh did both have successes in the field, though. We've kind of described the way they carried about their expeditions, but they did both have successes. Though Marsh, of course, with his official Yale connection and his Peabody inheritance at his disposal, did have more resources to throw at the situation. However, both, to some extent, Cope especially, were reliant on being associated with one of several geological surveys of the West that were going on at the time. It was kind of an official backing almost. Yeah, being involved with these surveys provided economic support for their work and a vehicle for publishing their findings. And this becomes important later in our story as well. So just kind of remember that. We talked a little in the last podcast also about how Marsh and Cope started going at each other, mostly by way of letters after their initial expeditions out west, when they started really competing in a sense for fossil finds out there. But they really launched into full-scale warfare in 1877 when Arthur Lakes, who was a mining teacher, wrote to Marsh saying that he'd discovered some fossils near Morris in Colorado. Now, Marsh didn't reply, so Lakes said, well, okay, I want to do something with these, so he sent some samples to Cope. When Marsh heard that, though, he sent Lakes some cash to win him over. He was like, well, I don't want Cope to get these. After that, after getting that cash, Lakes asked Cope to please send back his samples so that he could work with Marsh. And according to Huntington, part of what Marsh found among Lakes' initial find were the remains, the first remains of a stegosaurus. Around the time, the same time, too, another teacher named O.W. Lucas also found some fossils in Colorado. He contacted Cope first about it, and Cope jumped at the chance to, to check out the fossils. Overall, according to Huntington, Cope's Colorado finds actually turned out to be better than Marsh's because they were bigger and they could be taken out of the surrounding rock without breaking them. Marsh, of course, though, did come out on top in other situations. In the summer of 1877, for example, two railway workers in Como, Wyoming, named William Reed and W.E. Carlin, contacted Marsh about some fossils that they had discovered at a site known as Como Bluff. And Marsh, of course, sent his bone collectors out there. They ended up gathering 30 tons of fossils from the Jurassic Age and shipped all the stuff back to Marsh at Yale. And it was very high quality, you know, large bones. It was well-preserved. The result of, of Marsh's investigation of this find, too, really speaks to how high quality it was. He he discovered several new species and, and named uh, the owl the Diplodocus, the Camptosaurus, all from those Como Bluff finds. And also, notably, he named the Brontosaurus out of those finds, one of the world's best-known dinosaurs and Sarah Doughty's favorite <laughs> dinosaur, I should mention. Interesting, though, that the naming of Brontosaurus is actually considered one of Marsh's biggest mistakes. After he died, scientists realized that the creature Marsh had named Brontosaurus was just another example of a dinosaur Marsh had already named, the Apatosaurus. So the designation Brontosaurus was taken away. Obviously, though, that's kind of an enduring kind of stuck mistake. Around. <laughs> yes. So it's probably clear by now that Cope and Marsh often weren't the ones actually digging in the ground, collecting fossils, or even supervising digs themselves. Hence all the talk of sending bones back east to them. They accomplished a lot of what they did through the help of bone collectors. 
Cope and Marsh would occasionally visit the dig sites, but the fossil collectors were sort of the foot soldiers in this battle that they were waging against each other, too. There really was a lot of taking sides. Reed took Marsh's side and became a major collector for him. While Carlin switched over to Cope's side, Lucas remained on Cope's side, while Lake's stuck with Marsh. I, I'm, I was surprised by Lucas, I think, since he sort of got slighted at the beginning by Marsh, but I guess I was the too. pay might have been better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that means a lot. It does. Uh, occasionally, though, according to Huntington again, the two paleontologists would try to woo each other's collectors away from the other. Um, I don't know if they were tempting them with better publication of the works or, or money all the time, but that wasn't the most extreme of the tactics used in this war. I mean, that already sounds a little bit dicey. But they also spied on each other. Marsh, at least, would even communicate in code with his collectors to try to keep Cope from figuring out what he was up to, what his bone collectors were up to. They referred to Cope as Jones in this sneaky correspondence. And one of Marsh's guys was so paranoid about Cope spying on him that when a man showed up at their camp one day in 1878, he asked for a handwriting sample in case it was Cope in disguise. He was so suspicious. So I guess they were right to worry, though, because Cope really did charm his way into one of Marsh's camps in 1879, probably to woo some team members over to his side or just to steal information outright. But the funny thing was, Marsh's men really liked Cope. According to Huntington's article, Lakes later wrote of the incident that Cope, quote, entertained his party by singing comic songs with a refrain at the end, like the howl of a coyote. And Lakes went on to observe, quote, I must say that what I saw of him, I liked very much. His manner is so affable and his conversation very agreeable. I only wish I could feel sure he had a sound reputation for honesty. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> According to an article by Renee Clary, James Wandersee, and Amy Capernelli in Science Scope, Marsh was said to have planted unrelated fossils at some of Cope's dig sites to slow down his progress, too. So it's not just invading the other yeah. guy's camp. and No reputation for honesty there, yeah, either. It, well, it, I mean, that, that takes it to another level, it though. It does. Um, tampering with the, with the science, essentially. Yeah, I mean, and that was the really shocking part of Cope and Marsh's tactics, is that they just, they went beyond trying to harm and hinder each other in their efforts. They actually may have harmed the field itself or maybe even hindered scientific progress in some cases. For example, if Marsh's guy Reed unearthed more bones than he could use, he smashed them so that Carlin couldn't get to them. Marsh is also said to have ordered that certain sites be blown up with dynamite to keep Cope from getting to the fossils. Although, according to a 2008 article by Jean-Vive Rujewski, at least when it comes to one of the sites that was supposedly blown up, Quarry 10, which is in Morrison, Colorado, those allegations are false. Some researchers found Quarry 10 in 2002 using Lakes' field notes and determined that Lakes probably just shoved some dirt in there and then said he dynamited it to discourage the competition from checking it out. The way I sort of read that, though, is maybe he had his history of dynamiting things already established, though, if people were going to believe that. Could be. Well, it may have been out west that some of the more colorful war tactics were used by these two. 
As we hinted in the previous episode, the really decisive battleground for the Bone Wars turned out to be Washington, D.C. And this is where Marsh really pulled ahead, because even though he wasn't winning any popularity contests, he was much savvier when it came to politics than Cope was. The first development that really set the ball rolling for Marsh had to do with those surveys out west that we talked about earlier. In the late 1870s, early 1880s or so, Congress, upon the advice of the National Academy of Sciences, which, by the way, was an organization which Marsh had become president of, decided to do away with all of the existing competing geological surveys and create just one national geological survey to replace them. They decided to call it the United States Geological Survey, and the former head of one of the defunct surveys Marsh had been affiliated with was named as the director. Uh, so soon, Marsh became the official vertebrate paleontologist of the United States Geological Survey. Not too surprising there. If, it, if he's the head of the National Academy of Sciences already, he knows the new head of the Geological Survey. Uh, I mean, he was certainly at this point winning the feud in terms of political clout in the science world, in terms of how his career was progressing. Uh, when Cope lost that government support, it really devastated his research, too, and his publication efforts. He just didn't have any funding anymore, and his personal wealth, which he had also put toward his efforts in paleontology over all these years, was starting to, to dry up. Cope, looking for a get-rich-quick sort of scheme, tried to make up for it by investing in a silver mine in New Mexico, but that turned out to be a bust. He lost everything. And uh, it really seemed at this point that there was a clear winner and loser in this feud. But that didn't seem to be enough for Marsh. He took things a step further and tried to have Cope's fossils confiscated, claiming that they'd been collected with government funds. Cope completely denied this. He said that he had used his own money to collect the fossils. And then he decided to fight back against Marsh in the only way that he could at that point, and that was through the press. He approached a writer for the New York Herald and told that writer basically every bad thing that he had ever thought or heard about Marsh. And this kicked off a very public, very brutal battle of words between Cope and Marsh that was splashed all over the pages of the New York Herald between January 12th, 1880 and January 26th, 1880, under headlines like, Scientists Wage Bitter Warfare. And they went way back in their relationship, too. They weren't just considering the last few years as their as their ammo. Um, they, they went back to the beginning. According to Huntington's article, Cope said things like Marsh was, quote, unable to properly classify and name the fossils his explorers secured. It's pretty damning. Uh, he said that Marsh took credit for his assistance work, and he also accused Marsh and the U.S. Geological Survey of corruption and misuse of government funds, which is pretty key here. For his part, Marsh brought up how Cope rushed to get his discoveries into print, you know, before they were ready, uh, often making errors in the process. He also brought up that embarrassing mistake with the elasmosaur, among other things. We we discussed that in the in the last podcast, flipping the head and tail of the dinosaur and then having Marsh be the one to point it out. 
This newspaper feud didn't last long, but it was really damaging to both of their reputations. So nobody won in this instance. Cope struggled to find a buyer for his massive fossil collection because he needed the money. Eventually, he could only sell part of it. And then he hit the lecture circuit and tried to secure a paying position at a college. He didn't have that backing behind him that Marsh had at Yale. I think I saw him described in one spot as a rogue rogue scientist or a rogue paleontologist. Uh, well, and now he has all this bad press out, too. Exactly. So doubly, he, he just doesn't have anyone to go to at that point. It, it just proved to be really tough to find a paying position. According to Pennock's article, he finally got a position, though, and a small salary at the University of Pennsylvania in 1889. And he turned out to be a pretty good teacher. But of course, that wasn't his life's goal. That's not what he had really wanted. He died in 1897 of renal failure at age 56. According to PBS, and not right away, but in a couple years, Congress did investigate the U.S. Geological Survey's use of funds and ended up cutting their funding and completely doing away with the Department of Paleontology. Marsh was forced to resign, and for the first time, he had to accept a salary from Yale. He died of pneumonia in 1899, two years after Marsh, at the age of 67. He only had $186 in his bank account when he died of all that Peabody money that had come to him. His collection ended up in the Smithsonian and at Yale, and part of Cope's collection ended up at the American Museum of Natural History. That's like, those are the two or the three winners in the story, I right. think. The the places and, and us, too, you know, that we can go see them today. Yeah, and, and that there's this interesting story for us to look into. But looking at this result, there doesn't really seem to be like a winner at the end. Neither of these guys seem to really come out on top. But of course, they were both very accomplished overall, and they both made major contributions to science. If you stack up some of their accomplishments, though, side by side, what does it look like? We wanted to take a look at that. So first, we'll look at the naming part of it. Well, Marsh seemed to win when it came to naming dinosaur species. He named 86 out of the 130 some odd ones that they named total. Cope published more, though. According to Science Scope, his record of 1,200 publications is still unbeaten. Wow. I mean, I guess that is not too surprising. He won that side of the battle. Um, Marsh notably provided evidence for the theory of evolution, too, which Darwin himself called, quote, the best support of the theory of evolution at the time. Uh, he, he found 30 specimens, for example, that allowed him to outline the evolutionary history of the horse, and he recognized similarities of the modern bird in extinct dinosaurs. Cope, on the other hand, because of his religious convictions, probably didn't support Darwin's theory. But as Science Scope points out, he's known for Cope's rule, which is the observation that organisms of a species tend to get larger over time in the fossil record. So it just depends on what you're judging them by, uh, which one of them won. Yeah, and, and it, it certainly made me wonder, too, how much they accomplished because they did have the other one there <laughs> competing and, and egging him on, or whether they could have accomplished more if they had worked in better concert together than they did, not trying to sabotage each other's work as much. No, but it's interesting, just another tidbit here, their competition continued 
a little bit even after the grave. About a century after Cope's death, National Geographic photographer Luis Sahoyos got Cope's skull from the University of Pennsylvania. Cope had willed his body to science, so this was available. And he took the skull with him as he traveled around the world interviewing paleontologists for a book. And he referred to the skull as he was doing this as Eddie. <laughs> Later, he and paleontologist Robert Baker tried to have Cope's skull named as the type specimen, which means that it would have been the standard of a species to which all others are compared. He wanted to have it named as the type specimen for Homo sapiens. But it turned out that the late botanist Carolus Linnaeus had already been named the type specimen for Homo sapiens. So thank goodness for Linnaeus able to to step in there with his skull and, and stop this feud from continuing after death. Yeah, I read <laughs> elsewhere that one reason that Cope willed his body to science is that he wanted them to compare his skull size to Marsh's after Marsh died. But Marsh <laughs> didn't leave any sort of That's so weird. instructions to have his skull studied after the fact. So they didn't ever get to resolve that question. I think that's for the best. Yeah, it's better just to look at the story, look at their accomplishments, and decide for yourself, I think, who's the winner. But I'm curious for listeners to write in and tell us if they have a favorite in this war. I know that in the War of the Currents, for example, Tesla was the overwhelming favorite among our listeners, at least. And so I wonder, Cope or Marsh, do you have a favorite, Sarah? Who do you think you would have been pals with? I, I Well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> do I pick the guy who didn't have any friends? I mean... Odds are. Well, you're a nice person, so I could see so that. So I could have made friends with Marsh. I don't know. They, I, I found myself during this story kind of rooting for each of them and feeling bad points. for each of them and then thinking that they were each terrible, terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe I'll pass on this. Yeah. Okay. You're taking, you're pleading the fifth. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a pick? Uh, I mean, I guess I sort of agree with you, although I found myself sympathizing with Cope a little bit more. And maybe it's because some of the articles that I read were more biased in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I think it may also have a lot to do with the fact that at least from what I read from the evidence that I saw, it seemed that Marsh kind of did the dirtier stuff, like the <laughs> dynamiting of dig sites. I didn't like that at all. So no, that's not cool. Maybe Cope did it, too, but I didn't read any evidence that he had. OK, I'll stick to the brontosaurus. Stick with the brontosaurus. Yeah. There you go. Reliable. No apatosaurus for Reliable you. Reliable friends. <laughs> uh, well, before we go off too too far on a dinosaur tangent. So we have a very special listener mail today. Wouldn't you say, Dablina? Special and delicious. Special and delicious. It's a bottle of wine. Yeah, it's a gift we got in the mail. We got it from listener Dana. And uh, what it, what's it called again? It's called Brochelle Vineyards Rosé. We're going to try it out after our recording session, but um, we wanted to read Dana's note, too, because she had some ideas for future podcasts, too. She wrote, Dearest Deblina and Sarah, greetings from Paso Robles, California. My husband and I work in the wine industry out here, and we just finished a very long and grueling harvest season. My husband admitted that your podcast helped him through all the brute donkey work that harvest entails, from pick to punch downs to the bottling line. So I wanted to say thank you for providing such a welcome diversion during the most exhausting time of the year. But of course, we do love it. She went on to say, please accept this bottle of rosé from the winery I work at as our humble thanks. Sorry, Dublina, it isn't sweet, but I grew up in Atlanta and I guarantee it's what my mom called a, quote, porch pounder. 
us while we're oh, <laughs> save that's <it>. scary <laughs> for for after the episode. Um, but she she went on to say too that she figured she would use this opportunity to say that the historic alcohol series we did was their favorite, naturally for obvious reasons. Uh, but she really wanted us to revisit wine as a topic at some point, and a lot of listeners have been suggesting this lately. Um, something else on wine. Uh, her suggestions in particular were the quote cunning wealthy wine barons of the Rothschild dynasty or the story of why Charlemagne's wife insisted Burgundy plant more white grapes. She went on to say, it's very funny, I promise. So cool ideas. (laughs) Thank you, Dana, for for some wine suggestions and for the wine. We're looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Yes. And it's a lovely gift and a lovely thing to enjoy, but we're unfortunately going to be partaking of it for kind of sad reasons or happy Happy, sad 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 for us (laughs) but happy for our producer and editor lizzie who has been with us for a long time she's been editing this podcast for a very long time and she's moving on to another really wonderful opportunity lizzie is a fabulous photographer and she's going to be pursuing that a little bit more directly and we're going to miss her so much we are lizzie is so fun to work with she always has good comments on on what we're talking about it's always fun to rehash the subjects with her after recording and sort of let slip our secret opinions on Mm -hmm. on certain topics and she always makes wonderful things happen in the editing process whenever we have any crazy idea about inserting music into the podcast or anything like that she always helps us work it out or just cleaning us up you know yes making us sound good Um, but we are so happy for lizzie to go off to new and better things and um like dublinan just said she's a fantastic photographer she has a website lizziephoto.com it's lizzie with a y as it took me way too long to (laughs) finally learn um but she's great Good luck. We will miss you. Good luck, Lizzie. You will be missed. Keep in touch with us, and um, hopefully we'll get to see a lot of your great work out there very soon. So on that note, uh, we want to wrap it up and invite anyone who wants to to write to us with ideas, comments, questions, anything that is on your mind. We're at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Missed in History. And as we mentioned in the last Bone Wars episode, we have so many articles on dinosaurs. We actually have a site director who loves dinosaurs, so it ensures that we are well stocked on all topics paleontology related. So go check that out. It's all in our science section on www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.